Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, salam, and welcome to the podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel with the New Books Network. This is your host, Shahana Saqani. Today's discussion is on an exciting anthology slash reader titled Half of Faith, American Muslim Marriage and Divorce in the 21st Century, edited by Kisha Ali with previously published as well as brand new content by several influential scholars of Islamic studies. In Half of Faith, American Muslim Marriage and Divorce in the 21st Century, Readers find a wide range of texts on Muslim Americans' experiences with questions of marriage and divorce as they strive to do what they deem Islamically acceptable. This exciting anthology covers the broad themes of wedding, marriage, and divorce in the Muslim American experience. More specifically, the reader aims to explore the diversity in Islamic legal and theoretical thought, marriage and divorce practices, marriage contracts, wedding customs, and many other related issues. In this very vibrant and engaging, and in my objective opinion, fun conversation, I speak with Kisha Ali, the editor of the volume, in addition to several contributors who are Zahra Ayubi, Amina McLeod, and Asifa Qureshi Landis. Each scholar speaks on her contribution to the volume, Ayubi on divorce, Qureshi Landis, on marriage contracts in Islamic law, and McLeod on African-American Muslim women as they transition to Islam and get married. Further, we discuss why an Islamic marriage even matters to Muslims, and Kisha and Asifa share their views on fundamental issues with the Islamic marriage contract, and whether, as Asifa suggests, it's possible to reimagine the Islamic marriage contract as a partnership contract rather than a sales contract. The book, which is available for free with a searchable PDF through Boston University's website, will be of interest to scholars and researchers interested in questions of marriage and divorce generally, but more specifically in the context of Islam. Individual practicing Muslims who seek resources on nikah contracts, Islamic law, and divorce, Muslim and other religious leaders who serve Muslim communities, and undergraduate and graduate students in women's and gender studies, as well as religious studies courses. Without further ado, here is my conversation with the editor and some of the contributors of the volume. Hi, Zahra and Kisha. Thank you so much for joining me today to talk about this new wonderful edited volume, Half of Faith, American Muslim Marriage and Divorce in the 21st Century. I were also supposed to have um, a couple of the other contributors joining us and hopefully they'll join us in, in the next few minutes. So 
Before we begin, our tradition is to ask our guests to talk, to talk about themselves, their intellectual journeys. Uh, Keisha, we can begin with you. And then Zahra, if you can also tell us about who you are, what your areas of research are, what got you to this point. My name is Keisha Ali. I am a professor of religion at Boston University, where I've been teaching for 15 years. Uh, I teach in Islamic studies. My consistent areas of focus have included women and gender in Islam and Islamic law, and especially the intersection and overlap of those topics. So the half of faith reader in some ways actually encapsulates my academic trajectory. Um, my first serious published article uh, was a chapter in the Progressive Muslims volume in 2003, and that's here, uh, along with some other things that date roughly to that era and then moving forward in time. I'm, I'm Zahra Ayubi. I'm an associate professor at Dartmouth College. I've been at Dartmouth now for six years going on seven. Um, my work is on uh, gender and Islamic ethics, marriage, divorce, gender relations, sexuality, um, ma masculinity, femininity within um, pre-modern as well as contemporary Islamic ethics discourses. And I, let's see, this, this volume um, is in many ways a reflection of my journey as well, um, just because uh, the research that appears in it is one of the very first projects I um, ever undertook in an academic capacity. And then the, uh, the other contribution I have in here, um, which I wrote recently, um, is sort of a reflection on the several, I guess, 10 years worth of um, observations and continued engagement with the topic of, of, of marriage, but divorce in particular. Um, so, so that's, that's how this book is, is uh, related to, to my academic journey. My name is Asava Karachi Landis. I am a law professor by day. I teach uh, U.S. constitutional law. I also teach courses in Islamic law. Um, I write in fields of comparative uh, legal theory, so Islamic legal theory. And right now I'm working on a book on Islamic constitutionalism, um, where I'm proposing a, a model for Islamic government that I believe is very different than what we normally think of as Islamic government these days. Um, and I also have written in areas specific on women's rights issues, um, which are near and dear to my heart. And um, that is why I ended up in this project because Keisha, Ali and I know each other through our mutual interest in that field. And so I've written on um, Islamic family law in, in US courts. I've written, uh, I've worked, I was for, at one point I was president of Karama Muslim Women Lawyers for Human Rights, where I worked on a lot of projects sort of, you know, direct to the public, Muslim women public on the kinds of things that were important to them in this area. Um, what got me in the field? Hmm. Um, I did not come to Islamic law from a women's studies perspective. And I find that that's kind of unique among my colleagues in this area. Uh, and I'm really glad that I didn't because it can be really depressing <laughs> if you come at it. And the first things you read have to do with women. I came at this from an interest in justice and society more generally. And I took legal studies classes when I was an undergrad at Berkeley. And I thought about things like, why do we punish? What is the point of punishment? Why, what do different societies do when people have conflict with each other? Why do we give people money as a settlement? Why not something else? I was very, very big picture. Why 
justice, how justice, what do different societies do? And because of that interest, I was drawn into thinking about, well, I'm a Muslim. What does Islam have to say about all these questions? And so I self-taught all of my studies have been in the United States. So it's all a Western education. And I would run after books on my own and find, you know, teachers that came from all different perspectives um, that I could find here in the United States. And so I did an LLM, SJD um, in Islamic legal studies, uh, ultimately at Harvard. Um, and I was interested in comparative legal theory. And so my interest in American law is also a very big picture. I'm interested in constitutional law and legal theory. So the, the way that I came in, I started with a, a basic respect for the conceptual foundations of Islamic jurisprudence. I have a huge amount of respect for the humility of the scholars recognizing that they were fallible and so that all of their interpretations are fallible. And that's how we ended up with this diversity of interpretation. And that there is not a Pope between us and God. And if you're willing to do the work, you can do this work as well. And women were scholars at the highest levels, just like the men, even though we don't hear about them today. So I came in with a respect for the the, the theoretical work they were doing, not necessarily the doctrinal conclusions that they came to. And so when I finally went into specifically looking into women's issues, because I'm a woman going to law school and people asking me these questions, and some of the questions that are in this book are like, my husband took my kid overseas, or I want to get married, or I want to get divorced. I was like thrown into practical advising my friends. And so that's when I addressed the particular doctrinal issues, which were problematic, uh, in my opinion, for women. But I started with a basic respect for the discipline. And so it, it didn't shake my faith. I think that it does for so many other people. So I, I was able to come back to that. And that was always my lodestar. Like, okay, there is an answer here. Just focus on justice and truth and we can get there. And if there's an interpretation that I disagree with, that's a human interpretation. And I can disagree with that. And that's not disagreeing with God. That's disagreeing with a human and that's okay. And there was always that awareness in the jurisprudence, even if that high level knowledge is not transmitted to the average Muslim every day. And that's one of the problems I think is that we're not taught this theoretical foundations that allow for a lot more questioning and creativity than we think. So that's, that's how I got into it. And I was very lucky to be able to have a job where people pay me to keep thinking and writing about this stuff. So I'm a professor. Um, in Islamic studies, my area of specialty is Quranic ethics. It has become a whole bunch of other things as I took off learning and teaching about Muslim cultures. Uh, because one thing I found was that everything seemed to go back to Arab culture and it omitted everything else. So I went off to China, I went to Malaysia and other play African, West African Islamic stuff and found different interpretations, different applications, different understandings, different uh, references to stuff. So um, I really went off into Islamic culture and as the editor-in-chief for a while of the Journal of Islamic Law and Culture, I found people writing from so many perspectives that had not been heard before and that in the United States what had come was a kind of primarily Arabic-centered Islam followed by um, a South Asian centered Islam as if the rest of the Muslim world did not exist and their cultures and mores and norms. So beginning to sort through them as to what did all of this mean for the community I belong to. Uh, 
well, I belong to a lot of communities, but that and the problems and uh, the interesting, I, I don't want to call them innovations, but kind of, I got to work this out for myselfness of Black women, whether they're African American, Caribbean, or African, and taking advantage of American policy. And I have to admit, Asafa, and explaining all of this, I taught Islamic law for undergrads, and I found that I didn't know anything about American law. So I jumped up and enrolled in law school with my silly self. I flunked out after two years because I couldn't take it anymore. And I'm, my hat's off to people who finished because, I mean, I, I was sitting there in constitutional law saying, what the hell does commercial law have with, to do with people traveling from state to state? What the hell is it? I am glad I missed most of it, but I did love my um, critical legal theory classes and I was able to take them back to undergraduate studies of Islamic law. And now I retire. So I can call meetings and do all kinds of stuff that others can't do and watch a lot of Perry Mason. Thank you so much for that. Um, and Kisha, can you tell us about the process of compiling these chapters into the volume? How were the contributions or contributors chosen? Uh, were there people that you had originally planned to include that didn't work out or pieces that didn't end up working out? And of course, doing this in the middle of a pandemic, any challenges that you faced um, in putting all of this together? And thank you so much for doing so and also for making it open access. Thanks very much. The pandemic was absolutely crucial. Um, and it was crucial in a couple of ways. Um, one, which I'll come back to, is that it made uh, getting the funds for this project possible. And I'll come back to that. Two, um, I wasn't getting, I'm still really not getting my own uh, monograph writing projects done. I just find that I, it's very difficult to sustain the kind of focus necessary for a particular kind of thinking and writing. And three, um, the pandemic got me thinking much more flexibly about really making better use of some of the resources that we have available to us. Um, and it occurred to me that a useful project wasn't necessarily the same thing as a perfect project. And so getting to your question about how did this come together? Who were the contributors? How were things chosen? This was an absolute uh, sort of easy uh, people in my networks, Hail Mary email. Basically, I wrote to half a dozen colleagues and said, I'm thinking of putting together this project, which would draw on previously published things that we've all got out there that are scattered, bring them together, make it possible for people to access them in this moment. Um, and everybody said yes. 
in the middle of a pandemic, when we all have email backlogs that feel like they stretch into the 90s, right? <laughs> I mean, I don't mean 90 emails. I mean, the 1990s. Um, everybody responded within a couple of hours, right? It was amazing, the energy around this process. And so with those commitments from a range of scholars at a variety of levels of seniority in a number of different disciplines from a variety of backgrounds, but all of us cis Muslim American women who've written about this topic um, and specifically academics, right? With university connections. Um, I went to seek resources to do the project. And this is the other thing the pandemic made possible. We have humanities support at my institution that is usually used for things like travel support, but nobody was going anywhere. So there was a pot of money that I could draw on. And initially uh, what I hoped to be able to do was pay for two kinds of things, three kinds of things. One, uh, permissions from publishers. And ultimately only one publisher asked for a permissions fee and it was really a nominal amount and that was pretty straightforward. There was a lot of paperwork involved with getting permissions uh, and a lot of it was tedious, but nobody was difficult about it. So that's number one. Number two, I wanted to be able to pay contributors. And ultimately, I was able to do that again at a token amount, I think $250 per contributor, not per contributed piece, um, which isn't a lot, but it's also something. And I think it's good precedent for people to be paid for their work. Um, and then half of the funds that we were able to get from my institution went to paying the designer, Komal Zehra, mm -hmm. uh, who did just a really fabulous job, not only of making the contributions look uniform and nice, but also making them um, something other than scans of wonky PDFs slapped together. Uh, so they're now e-reader accessible which is great for disability access. And also of course, just looks much, much, much nicer and it makes it searchable PDF. And, and so the functionality is also dramatically increased. When I teach about marriage or Islamic marriages in my Islam and feminism, Islam and gender classes, I, I teach primarily under, well, entirely undergraduate students and they don't understand what's going on. They, they don't appreciate why God has to be involved. Um, I talk about, for example, interfaith marriage in Islam, and I tell them the struggles that Muslim women face trying to uh, find re religious legitimacy for their marriages, and my students just don't get it. So I would love to hear how you folks navigate the question generally of why, is, why does an Islamic marriage matter? Why does a religious ma marriage matter? Why can't we just get a marriage license at the court and then call it a day. So this question actually is a really great one that I feel like I can't answer from the perspective of being a professor, I, just having, you know, read things and taught and learned things over the years. And I feel like I teach this question through um, through the interlocutors, through the people I have researched with, through the, um, the, the primarily Muslim women who I've interviewed over the years um, who have come to me. Um, so uh, to talk about 
marriage and divorce um, in Islam. And um, for a lot of the um, people that I have spoken with, God has to be involved or Islam has to be involved or marriage has to be in sort of Islamic terms um, rather um, because it has to do with the legitimacy of the relationships um, relationship in particular between um, husband and wife and it's always husband and wife in, in the context of, of, of um, in the context that I've studied at least. Um, and so uh, you know, and that legitimacy is, 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 I mean, on its legal, most base sort of, um, sense is, is, you know, legal sexual relations, but, um, but on a sort of a, a, on other levels, it's also about doing right by someone, right? So having a relationship that um, is public, that that is uh, that everyone knows about, that there are safety guards involved, that there are um, relationships that um, are beyond just the the married couple um, that are forged through marriage as well, um, that are also part of. Of, of marriage and that in having it within an Islamic sort of framework um, and why even, why people even need to bother at all with religion, I think has a lot to do with, um, with what, uh, how you do right by people and how you, um, and that you follow laws of God, not just for the sake of following laws of God, um, but also for, these are the rules that, you know, people will say, these are the rules that we know for how to do this, for how to be married and how to um, have children and um, make sure that everyone is playing whatever role that meant to play within. Uh, of course, all of this ha- is within, real, realistically speaking, is within a you know social context, a national context, a historical context, and so many other contexts involved, um, you know, the g- gender dynamics alone, um, you know, carry so much um weight on how these relationships play out. But for, for people, I think insisting upon having a religious relationship or a religion-based marriage, um, it, it, it's important because it has ultimately to do with one's personal relationship with God too, right? Whether or not someone is, um, feeling like they're fulfilling the obligations they, um, towards, towards God, or, or obligations they have, um, towards other people vis-a-vis what God might want, right? All that is, of course, is guesswork. And some of it is, is, is just trying to, um, adhere to specific, specific texts and so on. So, so there's a lot in terms of, of the role of religion within, within marriage and divorce. So, Let me come to this from a slightly different perspective. I think when I get asked by non-Muslim students about, oh, you know, look at these sort of weirdo religious Muslims. Um, That's not precisely how they frame it, but but that is is sort of the underlying sort of implication. What they're thinking. Um, I, I try two discursive strategies. So one is about resisting the essentialization of Muslims. There absolutely are Muslims, especially American Muslims, for whom this is really important. It's important symbolically, ritually, in terms of cultural identity, as well as in the kind of faith-based terms that you're describing. Um, But worldwide, 
like lots of Muslims, when they get married, they go to whatever the government agency is that issues marriage certificates because the thing that matters is having the marriage registered in order for rights and benefits, et cetera, et cetera. So that's part of the issue. I also make the um, choice not to exceptionalize Muslims. And in fact, what I try to do is estrange students in the US context from their common sense understanding of the US as somehow having this magical separation of church and state that Muslims issue. In fact, America has the weirdest marriage system, right? Where your priest, your minister, your rabbi, or your imam uh, can marry you in the eyes of the state, mm-hmm. right? Um, you can't do that in France, but you also can't do that in Egypt, mm-hmm. right? And so thinking about the things that our students, but also, you know, our neighbors, the general American public sort of takes for granted about marriage in the U.S. context, that's really helpful to me, I think, Mm -hmm. in terms of framing why for American Muslims, things play out the way that they do. Um, And that's a big part of the reason why Half of Faith is specifically limited to the American context when we do empirical work. Some of the pieces are absolutely dealing with the textual tradition, um, like my chapter from the Progressive Muslims article, but it's really in the service of what are the conversations that contemporary American Muslims are having. And they go precisely to Asifa's assertion that American Muslims on the one hand want to be faithful to this tradition and on the other hand really don't recognize an ethical uh, imperative in some of the doctrines that are being prescribed. And then um, also to the to the point to the question of, you know, the students' sociological observations of, you know, of, of whether or not people are bothering with God. And, and again, as Keisha, Keisha said, like, it, is it is it something pathological for Muslims in particular? Absolutely not, right? So the one thing that I like to say to my students is, well, think about um, the various marriages that you've seen in your lives and, and think about the question of whether or not people were insisting on having a church marriage or having, you know, their marriage in the church or, or, or having to search for someone or the, having to search for the right church or having to, you know, based on whatever their beliefs were, um, or having to, um, you know, uh, figure out, um, you know, whether or not to have a, a church service at all. Right. I mean, these are all questions that, um, are, are, existent and are impre- important and pressing for, for, for non-Muslims, uh, you know, because of the fact that, I mean, it's symptomatic of the fact that Muslims are not the only ones who think of um, marriage in deeply religious terms. American Muslims are not the only ones, right? Of course. 
So thank you all for that. So I'd like to now get to the the main content of the um, of the of the volume and of the reader. And I'd like to begin by so Asifa writes about Mahar and the the and, and Kisha too the fundamental. Um, problems with the Islamic marriage contract or the Islamic marriage generally. The Islamic traditional framework does allow for us to rethink Mahar in ways that's equitable, for example. So, and then I think Asifa asked if um, in the text you say something like, I don't know if Kisha will be convinced by this or if Kisha will disagree with it. I don't know. I would just love to hear that, that discussion here. So Asifa, if you can begin by telling us what you think the or the fundamental issues with the, um, with the Islamic marriage contract are, and then Kisha, you can respond, and maybe now you can tell us if you find her. Have a conversation. This is one of the things I love the most about what Kisha did here is that we were able to go back and have like a side conversation that is parallel to the actual publications that were kind of responding to each other and we're good friends. So it was actually really fun to go ahead and do this. And so I write in the, in the piece that, so, so Keisha wrote something in which she footnotes um, some organizations that I had worked with uh, in, in her critique of sort of the standard Islamic feminist language at the time, which was like, here are all your tools in Islamic family law. This is what you can do to protect yourself. And her critique, as I understood it, was fine, but that's not good enough. The entire family law itself is premised on a faulty premise, and we shouldn't be lifting that up and, and encouraging that. We should be rethinking the whole thing. And I took that as, a, as I said, like sort of throwing down the gauntlet. And it took me a while to respond because it felt like we're doing all this good work with these women and she's complaining and oh my God. Da, da, da. And so then I, I, I finally got around to like, I agree with you that it's on a faulty premise, but you work with what you have, right? And so, but then I gave myself this, this license to like, what would it look like if we challenged the entire premise? And so I went back to a thought that I had way back when I was in graduate school, when I first learned, um, I took a class in Islamic contract law and I, it was just sort of a throwaway comment that, oh, family law, the marriage contract is based on the premise, the, the sort of template of a contract of sale. And I was like, why is that on a contract of sale? Why, we have partnership contract law. Why, why was that the premise? And so everything basically flows from there. When you think about it as a sale, of course, what is for sale? Who's giving up what? And it leads into all of the critique that Keisha had to begin with. So I just sort of put it on the shelf like, well, that's frustrating. I wish it wouldn't have started with a contract of sale, but that's what we got. So when I wrote this response finally years later, I said, I did this thought experiment. What would it look like if it was based on a contract of partnership? And I am not a contract specialist in Islamic law or US law. So I was swimming in waters I did not know very much about, but I did the best I could with sort of identifying the pieces of this puzzle that I thought would be helpful with a big request to those who are experts in this, please take this and do the, the further had work that needs to be done, but sort of pointing in the direction of what I could see just using my, my brain on this and say, it looks to me like if we did this, a lot of things would change. The definition of access to divorce would change. The purpose of maher would change. The problem of, of basically Islamic contract family law allowing for such a thing as marital rape would change. There's lots of elements of this that could change if we thought differently about partnership Islamic family law as a partnership contract rather than a contract of sale. At the end, then I said, I give the parallel that I do in constitutional law, which is my thing uh, in the U.S. law context. And I said, I also teach 
you know, women's rights in my sec- in my constitutional law class. And there was an equal rights amendment that was supposed to change everything and it didn't pass and so it didn't get ratified. It passed, it didn't get ratified. And so there, what do we do then, right? Do we not use the 14th amendment to argue that sex discrimination is unconstitutional because it's less effective than if we had had an equal rights amendment, which really would have done the entire re- rethinking of the whole thing. So my argument in the end is like, I don't know how Keisha would feel about this, but I would love to rethink the whole thing, but not everyone's going to buy into this. We're going to get stuck with what we have. Here's what I suggest you do if you're working with the existing family law. And here's my dream world of what we would do if we could change everything, knowing not everyone's going to sign on to that. So now we get to hear what Keisha's responses to that live. Yeah, so basically I'm convinced. Um, I mean, I think the idea of building marriage as a partnership is something, you know, it's an obvious and straightforward insight. And I think it's one that sort of come up at various times in various conversations. One of those things where where I'm not sure I could trace the lineage of the first time I heard it or the first time I said it, but your piece is the first time that anybody has tried systematically to argue for this in print. And I think somebody's probably going to pop up and, and remind me that actually, no, somebody. So please, if you have an earlier citation, send it to us. Yes, um, please. I would but, love to read it. Yeah. But I think um, while there are really wonderful ideas about partnership, including that people can bring to a partnership different kinds of things, right? That you can personalize a partnership contract to account for a whole range of kinds of contributions and stakes. Um, I'm not as convinced that it's a fruitful exercise to the extent that, and so let me explain why. Um, I do think you're right. It might not sort of get enough traction, right, to make it worthwhile. Um, But also, I guess I'm not as convinced, at least for Muslims living in the U.S. context, that if we're going to promote a really radical redefinition of how we think about marriage, our relationships to each other, to echo something that Zahra said earlier, how we do right by each other, right? And to echo something that Asifa said earlier, what's fair? Um, Then I'm not sure that refocusing on a particular kind of purportedly Islamic contract is the way forward, is the best strategy. If it's only going to get traction in a subset of the American Muslim community or the global Muslim community, is there a different way to think about how we recalibrate our relationship to Islamic law, Islamic ethics, and the variety of state formations that we live under, right? Because one of the things that I'm really interested in and curious about and not an expert in is the way that Islamic law as it formed engaged with and modified, but didn't completely erase or depart from existing legal systems and norms. 
So, you know, how helpful is that partnership contract for Muslims living in 21st century America? Or would we do better to begin from some different kind of premise? What would that look like? What would be the different kind of premise? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> this, is why, this is why I was like, this is like, I was so frustrated when I read, K- Keisha's great at the critique. I was like, okay. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and then. <laughs> right. Well, that's why I'm in a humanities department and you're in a law And school. I'm a lawyer. Exactly. Right. Like, we need a decision. <laughs> so, so, but, but, you know, here's the thing. The more I think about American marriage and the more I think about Muslims marrying in America, the more I think, that, you know, we need universal health care and to disestablish marriage at the level of the government. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, if that happens, mm-hmm. right, then I think it matters for Muslims to sort out some of those things. Mm-hmm. While we have a, an American legal system that says some of your rights and benefits as a person are contingent on the particular kind of relationship you have registered with the government, Mm -hmm. then I'm not sure that a parallel system for American Muslims to follow that has implications for finances, recognition of children and so inheritance, I'm not sure that's super useful. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, the question of disestablishing marriage from the state was a big issue with the marriage equality case. The Obergefell case brought that up a lot. A lot of people were like, you know what? Why are we even letting the state decide what a marriage is in the first place? Which, of course, now you're by some constitutionalism sensibilities, which is back in the day before colonialism and the modern interruption, there was the state didn't really define Muslim states didn't rulers didn't define marriage the what marriage was was defined by the various religious communities and the diversity of Muslim religious communities by the way and the state used its mechanisms to assign judges to adjudicate but they didn't take the whole control over it wholesale this is a legacy of the modern western european nation state interruption i see and so there yeah i agree with you i i think that there's a lot to be said for like you know what there are some things the state should be in charge of and there's other things the state shouldn't be and maybe we should go back to that but even when you disassociate it then muslims are still faced with okay when i go to my shafi qadi or my jafari qadi what family law rules are they going to be following and if those are based on a family law parrot a marriage law paradigm that's based on the contract of sale then they're going to be given the same doctrines that i'm i'm saying many people like today feel like that's unfair i don't think that women should be treated such and such and such a way just because islamic law says that is there another way within islamic law to do this and so that's the usefulness of op- offering new had new ideas that not everybody's going to take on, but if there are a few muftis out there who do, then I'm going to vote with my feet and go from my divorce to that mufti or that qadi. And just as all the schools historically basically rose or fell based on how many people follow them, we didn't always just have the five we have today. There were hundreds in the past. So which ones died off? One of the reasons is people just didn't follow them. And so if we just make some, if, if you're really serving your public and you're really giving people answers that really help their lives as they are today, I would hope that more people, they would just get more customers. And then this, the schools of law that don't serve our contemporary realities, they're going to get less customers and they're going to die off. The only reason this stuff is propped up is because the state is enacting it into state law, right? If you leave it to the public to decide what's working for them, 
the, the I hope the good ones will survive. That's so I'm agreeing, agreeing and adding a little amendment to what you just said. So I love this discussion. I, I was also going to add uh, that in my experience and observations of Muslims, when you talk about Mahar, when you talk about Islamic marriage contract, the average Muslim person doesn't think of the Islamic marriage contract as a sales contract, right? So I think Asifa, we might have some luck because I, I'm also very much in favor of redefining what it even means to be Islamic. I, I agree. I think I'm very sure that there must have been some, some Islamic legal schools that didn't survive that probably would have supported what we're arguing here. I'm entirely in favor of rethinking Mahar as a not based on this analogy of the enslaved and the enslaver and so mm-hmm. on. And so I I, I found the, art, the, the, the chapter very convincing. I thought it was really wonderful. I could not wait to get to the to the end where you talk about this model. And I was like, wait, because you have, you have I mean, really, it was really great. Because I think it's in that in that chapter, you talk about, um, this is a totally different issue, but permission for men to have sex with uh, concubines. And, right. and you argue that that's not the case. So I would love to one day also read something of yours on that as well. If you Oh, that's been a, yeah, that, I know. I, I know. <laughs> But that's been something on my mind since I was 12, the first time I ever heard of it. And it's like, it needs to be addressed. And I actually, it's an interesting point. Like I, when I first started thinking, what are the things that really bother me the most that I really want to work on? Um, that really, really bothered me as I think it bothers a lot of Muslims, not just women. And I looked at all of the things that I had bandwidth to deal with. And I thought, well, divorce and marriage is happening every day. There's problems there. I want to look at that. Slavery, I thought, was over. And then you find out, not really, and then you find out there are Muslims not willing to go the entire way and say it's over. And then you have horrible stories of ISIS and human trafficking and Muslims in various ways looking the other way. And so that made, it was a gut punch that I was like, man, I prioritize this because it seemed logical, but it turns out they're both equally really, really important on the ground. And so, yes, I agree. We need to work on that. Yeah. And Asifa, I mean, part of what I think I was trying to get at is the interconnection. Yes, exactly. Between the two, exactly. right? Um, which, which is why I think the partnership piece of this, this right. model that you're proposing is so essential. And I think being able to say, no, we repudiate this logic right. that says some human beings either literally or metaphorically right. can own. exercise ownership and dominion over exactly. others is right. so essential yes right and that we undo it not just for marriage but for everything the rest of it and yeah. you're and there's the point sorry Zahra just one little thing more and there's the reason why your gauntlet throwing was so important because my first the stuff you were critiquing the stuff Karama does and did it, it working with the existing family law is yes I think it does help protect women but it doesn't like you said get at the heart of some of the very core conceptual problem that is also at the heart of the core conceptual problem of slavery. And you, you're right that they are connected. And so when I finally got the time to do my thought experiment of partnership contract, I was able to step completely outside of all of that. And I would love that to be the norm. That would be wonderful. But again, I have the practical challenges, but you're right that they are connected and you can't really talk about one without the other. And your piece was so revolutionary in bringing that to everyday awareness that I don't think people were before. Well, one of the things that I've been wanting to say in 
and and this might of course be another frustration with having to be located in the humanities and not be able to do anything practical about things um is something i've learned from um from being from studying islamic ethics pre-modern islamic ethics texts akhlaq genre and so on is that the very same um scholars who were you know much the heads and and um and and scholars of islamic law were also eth- like wearing ethicist hats right and they were like writing in different genres and and in the akhlaq genre it's very striking that marriage and and um and not and divorce less so but 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 divorce too marriage is very much thought of in non-legal terms right so so no one's talking about um the premise of the of the of the contract or even the nuts and bolts of of the contract um you know and how it's how it it takes place i mean there's a, obviously a few lines that say okay and then there there's you know there's an offer of marriage acceptance of marriage blah 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 but but the 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 greater sh- you know uh, portions of these texts of, on marriage um, the lion's share of of the discussion is about you know what to do and the and the relationship between husband and wife and 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 that dynamic and that is something that's you know in what I see as like off the legal books right type of discussion in terms of oh you know the, the husband should be dominant and the woman and the and the wife should be subservient and but then it's also wrapped up in this language of well you know husband and what the wife is the co-parsoner of or like and the and which is like very much like a partner to the husband's estate or is like a or like he's the company and she's like the the dutiful employee like he's the ceo and she's the cfo type of type of analogies that a lot of people like to draw um, when they read these kinds of texts and um and and that and that sort of you know language it sets up a hierarchy within marriage that is in many ways off the books i mean yes it's a sort of you know concomitant to the 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 master and 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 slave analogy um that's uh that's set up by the marriage contract but it's but it's in many ways independent of that contract and and it's about sort of dynamics and like you know just um like on the ground what it looks like to be in a hierarchical marriage within and what 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 is like an islamic culture or whatever that might be and and so when that's the situation when you have this sort of gender dynamic within in marriage, it's almost never that that the law comes up until there is an issue of divorce, right? Until until we're talking about divorce, then suddenly people remember that there is a legal relationship that needs to be dissolved, and you know what are the what what is the meaning of mahar suddenly, and what is the meaning of all of these things that people don't really think through deeply about when they're getting married, when they're entering into the contract, and so because because marriage is about all of these other broader sociological things right and um and so so all of this is to say that um that that shifting the premise to a partnership contract would probably help in in insofar as what you guys are, have been talking about in, in terms of using the tools that we have from a legal perspective but then from like the ethics perspective of like what can, what what the relationship actually means on the ground when you're married like the now what we're married so now what um you know that is something that i feel we need to think through um 
as well. You know, what, what, how, how to address the, the ethical relationship or the, what an ethical relationship might, might be within a partnership model. Um, because so much of the dynamic is embedded in the patriarchal norms, in the hierarchical concepts of, of, of masculinity over femininity and, and so on. And so it's, um, and, and, and men over women within and obligations and so on. And, and I mean, we can talk about you know, Quranic verses and, and, and we can, you know, we can talk about men in Kawama and so on. But I feel again, that from having studied ethics discourses, they're not talking specifically, specifically about Kawama. Like people don't necessarily bring up Kawama by name, even though it's implied. Right. So, um, so, so that's, that's something that I feel, um, we we can think through as well when it comes to rethinking the whole premise for sure i want to also make sure that i uh we hear from amina i loved your piece i wish it was longer <laughs> i wanted to read more and you mentioned um interviews with uh with, with african-american muslim women who are converts to islam who are contracting marriages islamic marriages so i'd love to hear more about your research on this issue uh, and the experiences of african-american women who are con- who are converse uh, or just generally contracting a marriage upon conversion well first of all the research it is just beginning in many ways there there are several different layers of cultural stuff going on here that um, I hear. Uh, Generally speaking, African-American Muslim women clearly uh, function with one leg inside of Islamic stuff and another leg inside of American stuff. And some of the things that the women I'm listening to are bringing up don't occur. Few have viable contracts. They rely upon uh, the state system, the federal system to adjudicate whatever issues they have and would not understand the cultural stuff. But they also have the cultural American stuff of I fall in love and I get married. And when that is terminated, you know, oh, here's this dude, and uh, you must get married now, because you're a threat in many, many ways. There's not understanding uh, what is going on there, how much of a threat unmarried women are, Um, really not understanding that my husband can dip his pencil in as many uh, wells as he chooses, um, and hearing, oh, well, there's this Islamic law that does this and that and the other, and all, and they're saying, and I won't use the nice words that they say about Islamic law, but um, women tend to, oh, I can't get an Islamic divorce because this idiot that isn't a man won't listen to me, so they walk away and feel very confident and walking away, because all I did was get married in the masjid, it has no bearing on me. Sometimes the, the men do the same thing, but increasingly, which is why I called Keisha, was I ran into a case where this man was using the mar as a leverage piece. And I'm saying, he's doing what? You know, and the leverage was 
I, I want everything I ever gave you back. And I'm saying, why didn't you tell him to kiss your wrist? What is going on here? And then the community, because of his status as an imam, backing him. And I said, fine, let's go to court. Let's get it adjudicated there because there was a civil contract where the Islamic contract may not, and it was very uh, short and brief. Um, and I'm noticing that women don't, don't hold up to the idea of a contract because they too want to have a companion. So they don't protect themselves in the contract. If their Wali is also unknown to them, he's not going to protect them in a contract. So I, I, I kind of pushed Keisha to go on this, this fight with me as she was doing other things and was saying, okay, I'm gonna, you know, okay, uh, kind of stuff. But um, I wanted something that was handy and a referent that I'm retired, but that I wish I had had while I was teaching that's in a plain, straightforward language that students can access. And the reader is a perfect thing for that. But I think women transitioning, last point, are very, very different. Uh, they hate being called converts because that's a Christian term that implies a, a different kind of spiritual quest, even though when put on them, they figure that I must dump everything in my wardrobe, put on this sack, and I become a non-person uh, because I'm supposed to do everything at once. Um, alienation of family is a big issue. Uh, and I think the surveillance and the non-camaraderie of women from other ethnic groups. Not understanding that many of these women come from homogenous environments and are not used to other people and have opinions about black women. Thank you so much, Amina, for that. That was very helpful. Zahra, I would love to hear about your pieces on divorce in this volume, why this is even needed, uh, what in your experiences or in working with Muslim uh, with Muslims sort of uh, inspired the need for this uh, particular guide and so on? So, so this this article came out is is, is a more of a reflection on on sort of ten or so years of of um, post having done um, research on on with Muslim women in the United States on their divorce experiences, what that was like. And some of it is navigating legal and um, uh, Islamic law and US law, you know, and but uh, but a lot of it is just navigating or dealing with what to do with Islamic law in general outside of court has, you know, and, and whether or not people feel obligated to, um, to, to pursue things from an Islamic perspective and what does that mean? And so one of the things that I say in the, in the piece is that, you know, regardless of what happens, you're, you're still Muslim, right? I mean, that doesn't change how, no matter how much you, or how much Islamic law or quote unquote Islamic law, you pull in or, or into your, into your divorce proceedings and um, how, no matter how things go down, you're still Muslim at the end of the day. And, and that reflection on uh, and, and what, how you, and how you, 
proceed in divorce because there are so many factors, especially not limited to safety and children and, um, you know, where people are going to live and who's going to support whom and things like that. How much Islamic law is brought into the divorce proceedings is not necessarily a reflection on um, how Muslim someone is, right? There's so many factors to consider. So that, that I felt like was really important to say, having, having had Muslim women who have uh, interlocutors uh, over the years who have gone through divorce come to me for guidance um, of how to get out is really a lot of their questions. Like, how do I, how do I get out of this marriage? How, uh, you know, given these set of circumstances that I have and how, um, and how, do I do this Islamically? Do I need to do it Islamically? Um, and if I do it Islamically, doesn't it mean that I lose? And um, and what do I do? So so those those are pretty much the questions that I'm trying to address in the piece. I'm not making pronouncements either way of whether you know of of how much Islamic law should be there. I'm also not trying to um, you know give legal advice per se. Uh, you know from Amer- you know U.S. legal advice. I'm not. But at the same time, what I'm trying to do in the pieces is is suggest what are the kinds of things that come up right based on what I've seen and um, you know whether it's whether it's figuring out a, an alternative place to live a safe place to live whether there is a restraining order involved whether there is some kind of um, you know involvement by police or not um, whether there is um, or, or, or even in in circumstances where it's not necessarily dangerous but whether there is you know um, financial abuse taking place where 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 money should go how much money you know quite questions about I mean the, primarily it's all it's about it's about money and children if if divorce is not about uh bodily safety then it certainly is about money and children and what to do about that and so so those are some of the concerns of you know that I try to um raise address or or invite people to consider when they're when they are seriously thinking about divorce and pre-think some of these things to sort of mitigate the the the, the calamities that might occur that I've seen happen um, just just to have a plan in place is really what the piece is about. So one of the questions that we like to ask our authors is to tell us about any current or future projects that they're working on that we can look forward to in the near future. One of the things on my back burner, I have, lo- I have a very big stove with lots of back burners, um, metaphorically, not in real life. But anyway, um, and so one of the things I've been wanting to do for a long time, because I the stuff, I mean, I mean, that you were talking about, about contract and not a contract and then going to court, I've worked on this and I allude to this in, in some of the pieces in the book. What happens when Islamic law shows up in U.S. court? So as a law professor, I've done research on this and Muslims are often thrown into a very weird place. And so I have been working on trying to educate people on how to write the contract if you want it to be recognized by the court, but different states do it differently. And now since the anti-Sharia legislation has come up, then that affects these cases too. And a woman in Kansas lost her $650,000 mother because of the anti-Sharia legislation. So it's, it's important and people need to know about it. Yes. So, um, so there, so it's a, it's a big deal. And people, I don't know, question, women are on both sides of this. They're arguing community property if it's more and they're arguing if it's more. 
and the men on exactly. the boat, it, it, it does, it's not like a pure, <laughs> we're exactly. always arguing for fic rules here. But the point is that there's lots of different experts. There's the lawyers who are handling these cases in court. There's the imams and the chaplains who are advising individual Muslims. And then there's us who are doing academic research on these things. And some of us want to do new had on partnership contracts instead of the old fashioned, you know, sales contract. And I would like to get all of these people in a room together and talk about <laughs> what are the options? Do we need to have parallel Beth Din style tribunals where Muslim leaders, including women and doing new had on these things are handling these cases for, for individuals and they're signing those civil licenses for people? Do we need to educate the judges better? Do we need to give all of the masjids better, you know, white sheets on how to do this and not do these bad, faulty boilerplate contracts that they're using right now? Like, there's a lot of different options, but I would like everyone to be sort of aware of all the different moving parts that are going on. And so this has been a project of mine. Keisha knows I was trying to put this together as a parallel session to the National Association of Muslim Lawyers Conference a couple years ago. Um, and I didn't get it together. And then COVID hit. And then I took on a bazillion other things. But I would like to get together just to have a chat or we could get together to do something even more intense and think about what does all of this mean on the ground as far as future activities i would love a, like an easy reader kind of thing for people just getting married like just what how do you write this what should you do what are the options karamba was working on this 20 years ago never actually finished but these are the kinds of things that i think would be useful so i think a social gathering a chit chat or a more intense thing would be great so speaking of this um sort of some kind of a primer some kind of a reader for uh, muslims yeah. getting married interested in getting married i get a lot of questions from yeah. uh, people who are watching my blogs or my, my reading my blogs and they're asking me for you know what does an equitable um, egalitarian nikah contract look like and I I, I I found I think a couple of things that hijab man used to have something I don't think it's working anymore that website but so something I, I, I have templates that I send people privately that I do but it's all with lots of caveats because again I'm not an expert in this thing I don't want them like citing me for legal advice but on this but it's all that exists like there isn't anything really really user-friendly and easy to understand um, and I've even seen some things that are actually I think disruptive in that like now that the wet Muslim wedding business is a thing like there's people offering to like make your contract all pretty with all like the calligraphy and everything and I'm like wait the content the content who cares about the font <laughs> I don't want the calligraphy they're like because it's like it's not just something to put on your wall like there is something here if you care about it you don't have to care about it but if you do it could be really important and I think it forces a conversation between the couple about what is the most important in your life? Where do you want to live? Do you want to have children? Do you want to go to graduate school? Do you need to be this or that in the lifestyle? Like when you write a Muslim marriage contract, these should be the kinds of things that happen in a conversation, whether or not they end up in the actual text or not, it is productive to have those conversations. And I agree, we all want to, today, I think in this world, in our context, we want to fall in love and get swept off our feet and get married, like you just said, I mean, but, there are all Islamic law does recognize this is a contract. This is a merging of lives. This is merging of money and location and children. And so it's important to keep all of that in mind at once. So something that's really user friendly for people to use would be really nice. Okay, wait, since we have a kind of critical mass of folks right here, right now, this was the spirit of this anthology yeah. was let's do what we can with yeah. what we have yeah. Yeah. in this moment yeah. and then yeah. see what yeah. the next steps exactly. are as opposed yeah. to waiting 
Right. Till it's all right. perfection right. is the Extended enemy perfect. of the good. Yes. And, and that's oh my goodness, is it ever? So so now we have here among the five of us, right? Somebody who's done practical work with people looking for guidance around interfaith marriages. Someone who wrote for this reader something brand new and practical as well as reflective around divorce, which we're going to come back to. Someone who wrote something very importantly reflective, but also really practical about guardians for Muslim women transitioning African-American women, but I think more broadly could be extended to transitioning women and somebody who has a brilliant and cleverly conceptualized notion, as well as some practical ideas about what should go into a marriage contract. I've done some stuff on officiating Muslim marriages. I would gladly edit that short DIY Dean guide to Muslim marriage that has something about interfaith marriage, that has something about divorce. It could be you know, a modified version of what Zahra has done here that has a why partnership and what this contract might look like that has something. I mean, you know, maybe it's a checklist for a guardian, right? Who is a wali? What should a wali do? How do you interview your wali? How do you get accountability from your wali, right? Any of these things that, that might come together. Um, I think Zahra did a nice job in the piece that she has in this volume of, on the one hand, making very clear that she isn't offering comprehensive legal advice, and on the other, talking about really the sorts of practical steps that one might take, and a little bit of the sort of reflective process behind them. I could imagine a shorter reader, right, that takes care of those things um, and, and that has a framework for that. And there might be other pieces that would be important to bring together. I would love to see Deborah, um, whose contribution from her book on polygyny is very important, um, contribute guidelines she's been working on for regulating polygyny in African-American Muslim communities. Um, I think that could be really also very useful, not applicable, of course, to everyone, but particularly relevant for those Muslims for whom it is um, really a practical consideration. Yeah, I mean, just really briefly, I mean, the thing that I was thinking of as, as we're all speaking is is precisely this kind of, of, of volume or, or short volume, short guide. People have also come to me for, you know, advice on premarital counseling and tried to sort of um, ask about not necessarily legalistically what should go in the contract, although that's where we end up, but really thinking about what does Islamic marriage look like? And the question of what Asfa was bringing up, or well, when, when you bring these lives together, what does that actually mean, practically speaking? And that actually, um, I feel like it are lots of, are, are the kinds of issues that address some of, some of the, the, the gender dynamics 
rights and the ethical concerns within marriage more broadly speaking, regardless of whether, you know, what cultural background you might be coming from, because clearly Muslims are bringing in, you know, all of their cultural context into their marriage as well. So whatever that might be and how that manifests within, within, a more higher, you know, within hierarchical marital relations, um, it might look different, but, but the, a lot of the issues in terms of what it looks like when lives are coming together, um, you know, we can sort of talk about all those, talk around all those. I I was going to say something about, um, officiating marriages, which, you know, I've done a handful of them. And, and that's really the kind of issues that come up when, 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 when I, when I do that is, um, you know, what is this nikah going to look like? And, and that, and that's something that the person who's officiating carries a lot of responsibility and they may not even know it in terms of how that's happening. And that's coming back to um, a a lot of the issues that Amina brings up in her piece um, in terms of, of, of responsibility and having a checklist of things to go through um, would be, would probably be beneficial on that level. I mean, I'm writing about uh, the experiences of women in a particular community, but they have walked away, many of them, from any notion of inheritances and other things in their uh, transitioning to Islam and alienated family members. So some of the things that are in these internet-ready conversations, you know, it's uh, negotiating care of parents, you know, is whether or not I go to school. In the American psyche, there is, if I want to go to school, I go to school. (laughs) Um, And not thought about for a contract. Inheritance is not thought about either. And because there, for many, is a name change, members of family can no longer track down the person who may have inherited a great deal. I just want to highlight inheritance isn't also an area of a lot of legal lawyerly work because they're often getting requests from people to write their wills because U.S. law, similar to what Keisha was pointing about marriage law, U.S. law very much allows individuals to designate wherever their inherit their money goes so you leave everything to your neighbor you could leave things according to a very highly stylized islamic distribution so this is one of the things that muslim lawyers often get a lot of work and there's lots of stuff out there about this and there are gendered issues that that people feel frustrated about there too Um, just like i said people are feeling frustrated about marriage and divorce law they're also like why does my daughter get half of what my son gets and so then there's work to be done as well so it's also an overlap yeah, thank you all so much. I really enjoyed it very much. I, I wrote to Keisha like a few weeks ago and said, I love this. I would love to interview for this because I, I would love to claim this, this interview with you. Um, and I'm so glad that all of you expressed so much enthusiasm in joining me uh, to talk about this. I'm, again, especially grateful that it's open access. Um, and so I'm so going to... I'm thrilled. I mean, this is really one of the most exciting elements of the project is that it takes these things that were all out there in the universe and theoretically accessible to anybody with time, money, the know-how to track Mm -hmm. them down. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's really different to have a link that we can just circulate. And and it has been, you know, the, the, OpenBU repository has been viewed for this project more than 5,000 times. And the, the, 
book as a whole has been downloaded over a thousand times Yay. in the six months since it's been out, yeah. um, which is, you know, better than basically anything else I've ever published. That's so, awesome. so yay. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I was also like surprised because I, this isn't my main field of work and study, but I keep, a, I try to keep an eye on everything. And I'm just surprised at people who didn't know about some of these earlier publications. It's just, they were out there and I would, you know, give it to a student. They'd be like, oh, I didn't find this. And so they're out there, but it takes some work to find them. So Keisha did everyone a huge favor of putting it all together in one place. And the, the dynamic of all of the different voices that are here and the different fields of study and the generations. And it's just a really wonderful collection. And I'm just honored to be a part of it, Keisha. This is really awesome. And Shahnaz, thanks for giving it attention because I think the next step is to let everybody know that it's here. So those who've gone over yeah, to the open yeah. access, but I think that lifting it up and bringing it on people's radar, I think would be a real service. Thank you all so much for this. I thoroughly enjoyed it. One of the best interviews I've done. Oh, you've been a joy too. Oh. We'll talk. Let's talk. Okay. All right. Shahnaz. Thanks everybody. Thanks so much. Okay, so that was my conversation with Kisha Ali, Zahra Ayubi, Asifa Qureshi Landis, and Amina McLeod about the online publicly accessible reader, Half of Faith, American Muslim Marriage and Divorce in the 21st Century. Thank you all so much for your time and I'll see you again soon. Oh, and by the way, the conversation on a future DIY sort of volume, a guide for Muslims considering marriage that came up in the in interview has gone into fruition and we're all working on our chapters. The volume should be ready in the next couple of months for public consumption, so please look it up. Thanks again. Salam.